And we know that because of both Joel 3.15 and Matthew 24.29. So when you look on the screen, I want you to think about the entirety of the 70th week of Daniel is really characterized by cosmic disturbances. Why? Because that time period is about the end of the age. It's about the reestablishment of Israel. It's about being giving birth to the new messianic age. That's what it's about. And so I mentioned that this is synonymous with what Isaiah was writing about regarding the day of the Lord. And the only reason I put up Isaiah 13.10 is that you would see that, yes, the sun, moon, and stars being darkened really was about the day of the Lord. And that's really what the 70th week of Daniel is about. It's the day of the Lord. Isaiah 13.10, Isaiah said regarding the day of the Lord, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. So the 70th week of Daniel, therefore, is the day of the Lord, and it's about the end of the age. That's what it's about. So what I want to do is show you how this works out in the 70th week of Daniel. What I'm going to show you here is it actually happens that, yes, in the 70th week of Daniel, the sun, moon, and stars are actually going to be darkened. And that's what Joel is going to be telling us when we get to Joel chapter 3. So remember, when we get to Joel chapter 3, this is about the future day of the Lord. So Joel chapter 1, locust judgment, preliminary day of the Lord. Joel chapter 2, about Assyria and the Babylonian judgments, preliminary day of the Lord. All pointing forward to Joel chapter 3, which is going to be the great battle still in our future, where the nations gather around Jerusalem to destroy the people of God. And so that's what Joel 3.15 is depicting when it says, the sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Now, why that, that should be of particular importance to us as New Testament believers is because we see in Matthew 24.29, Jesus using the same language. Notice what he says. Remember, he's been talking about the 70th week of Daniel. And he says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, now listen to the language on all caps. He says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, one of the things I think it's very important to define here is what does Jesus mean when he says immediately after the tribulation of those days? First of all, the term immediately, uthos, shows us that there's no intervening time gap. Okay, so this isn't one epoch of time followed by another. This is immediately. There's no time gap between this, but it's after the tribulation of those days. One of the problems that I've seen in evangelicalism that I think we have to be on guard against is interpreting those days as if it's the church age that we're living in. No, those days is referring to what Jesus had just discussed, which was the 70th week of Daniel. Now, simple proof of that is 14 verses earlier in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus referred to the abomination that causes desolation. In fact, Matthew says, let the reader understand. So we're to understand that this is in the 70th week of Daniel. So when he says after the tribulation of those days, it's not the church age. Okay, so many evangelical scholars who love the Bible, they do make that error. So they say, well, you know, after the the church age, then these things are going to occur. That's not what Jesus is teaching. He is not teaching that. He's saying after the 70th week of Daniel, it's those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. He's describing the same thing you see in Joel 3.15. Now, why do we know that? Because when you get to Joel, it's all about the last battle where the nations are going to be brought to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, uh, which means Yahweh judges as they try to wipe out the people of Israel. And it's at that time, Jesus is going to return, according to Zechariah 14, and he's going to destroy the enemy surrounding Jerusalem. So it's at that time, then, immediately after the 70th week of Daniel, that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will literally be shaken. Now, why should we be taking this literally and not figuratively? Because it really is the end of the world. This is really the consummation of the age. Remember, I had discussed that one of the images behind the day of the Lord was that of birth pains. 
in the image that Jesus gives, the image that Isaiah gives, the image that the Apostle Paul gives, is that these birth pains would start out painful, but they would get more severe for seven years. And after that seven-year time period, what would be birthed would be the Messianic age, literally a new age. A new age would dawn. The old world is gone. Jesus will be on the throne. His enemies will be subdued. So the sun, moon, and stars really will be darkened. There really will be cosmic upheavals. What was figurative in Joel's day, what was figurative in Isaiah's day, will be literal. It'll be the culmination of what all of it was pointing to in the Old Testament. I think that's how we should interpret it. Now, let me just remind you what the disciples asked, because it'll show you it's all about the consummation of the age. It's about the end of the world. Matthew 4, 24, verse 3, remember the setting. Jesus had just come out of the temple in Matthew 23. He had excoriated the Jewish leadership for not believing. And he said to them, you will not see me again. He's talking about himself until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, citing Psalm 118, 26. Well, then he says that their house was left to them desolate. So the, Jesus, who is the Messiah, this very son of God, is abandoning, remember the term aphemi, he abandons the temple. And where does he go? Well, he goes to the Mount of Olives. And in the Mount of Olives, he talks about the destruction of the temple. Well, the Jewish disciples of Jesus believe that the destruction of the temple must be coincide with the end of the age. Why? Because they're on the Mount of Olives. On the Mount of Olives is where the Messiah comes back to destroy the enemies surrounding Jerusalem who are going to destroy the temple in their minds once again from Zechariah 14. This is all in their minds. So listen to the question. The disciples ask as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Again, the phrase here, your coming is the parousia the parousia of Christ, the technical term for his coming, but it's associated with what? The end of the age. Now, the term end there, suntelia, literally means the consummation. It's the consummation of the age. Why? Because when Jesus returns, he is going to bring in a new age, an age in which righteousness will reign, an age in which there will be no more death on his holy mountain. That will be the age that he's going to bring in. Okay, so that's the question they're asking about. That's the setting of the all of the discourse. They're asking about the end of the age. And so when we look at the cosmic upheavals, the sun, moon, and stars being darkened that happened in the 70th week of Daniel, we say, yeah, that's really about the end of the world. It's the end of the age. Now, let me remind you that this end of the age is about the kingdom coming to Israel. Why? Because that's what the 70th week is about. Daniel couldn't be any clearer than that. Daniel 9.24a, remember when he gives the 70th week's prophecy, he says 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Who was the people of Daniel? That's the your. Well, that would be Israel. What was Daniel's holy city? Well, that would be Jerusalem. So the 70 weeks prophecy was about the people of Israel, and it was about Jerusalem. The first 69 weeks of years had to do with Israel and Jerusalem, the last seven years is going to have to do with what? Israel and Jerusalem. Okay, this isn't that hard. Now, in between is a very important parenthesis. Yes, the church wasn't an afterthought. It was part of God's plan. It wasn't sufficient for Jesus just to be the Savior of the Jews. According to Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, he was going to be sent also to save the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are going to be grafted in. And so by faith in Christ, we have been grafted into the kingdom that is coming to Israel. But the kingdom is coming to Israel and the headquarters will be in Jerusalem. So when that kingdom comes to the people of Israel, notice on the screen, and to their own city, it's the consummation of the age. It's the restoration of all things. It's the new messianic age that the prophets had foretold. And so when the sun, moon, and stars are being darkened in literal fashion, 
it really is symbolic of the end of the age. That's why we see it. Now, one thing I want to point out is notice Jesus talks about further signs in Matthew 24, 30 through 31. Notice he says, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So notice, right after the sun, moon, and stars are darkened, what sign happens? Well, it's the sign of the Son of Man. Now, I put in blue this phrase, the sign of the Son of Man, because the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite self-designation. He refers to himself as the Son of Man more than any other title. Now, notice also he uses it here in all caps, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. Now, the reason why Jesus uses the Son of Man deliberately as his favorite self-designation is to link us to the Daniel 7 prophecy, in which, remember, you would have four successive kingdoms that would come about. You would have the kingdom of the Antichrist, but then the true Christ, the Messiah, God's Son, approaches the throne, and he's given dominion over the entire earth. The Son of Man who rules forevermore. That's why he's using that phrase, the Son of Man. It's to, to bring us to Daniel 7.13, where the Messiah is going to reign over the entire world, where the keys of the kingdom are given to him. Now, notice then, this is a primary sign that happens at the end of the 70th week, right? So he's going to be coming to destroy his enemies. That's what Joel chapter 3 is about. That's why they're just describing both Jesus and Joel, the same sun, moon, and stars, uh, the uh, cosmic upheaval. Now, notice in verse 31, it says, And he will send forth his angels and gather with a great trumpet. They will gather together his elect. Now, one thing I want to point out is this is not a rapture passage. And I just want to clarify this because it relates to the sun, moon, and stars in the promises given to Israel. Let me explain. The term great trumpet that Jesus is referring to only occurs once in our Old Testament. There's only one time in the entire Old Testament that gadol shofar, great trumpet, is used, and it's Isaiah 27, 13. Okay, that's it. That's when it's now. I also want you to see that in Isaiah 27, 12, in the Septuagint, the same term here for gather is used, synago. Here it's episynago. It's the same family of words. Epi is just simply a prefix put on the, the beginning of synago. So the point is, this is a reference to Isaiah 27, 12 through 13, where the promise was one day God would gather again all of the Israelites back into the kingdom. So this is a gathering not of believers in Christ into heaven, as is the rapture in John 14, 1 through 3, but instead this is a gathering of Jewish believers into the kingdom of Israel. Okay, now let me prove this. Let me have you turn your Bibles, if you will. I want you to turn your Bibles to Daniel, excuse me, not Daniel, but Isaiah chapter 27. Isaiah 27. Please turn your Bibles there. In fact, we'll look at Isaiah 27, verse 6. What I want you to see, if you turn your Bibles to Isaiah 27, verse 6, is that one day God had promised that yes, he's going to reestablish Israel. It's going to take root as a nation, and they're going to bear fruit. Why? Because they're going to believe in the Messiah. So turn to Isaiah 27, verse 6. And this, I think this verse succinctly shows you what Isaiah 27 is about. It's about the reestablishment of Israel. Notice Isaiah 27, verse 6. It says, in the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. Now, remember, fruitfulness in the Bible is faithfulness to God in both doctrine and deed. Let's ask ourselves the question, is Israel currently faithful to God in doctrine or deed? No. Why? Because by and large, the vast, vast majority have not believed in the Messiah. So the only way that they're ever going to be fruitful 
is when they turn to faith in the Messiah. And we know it's promised in the Old Testament that they will turn to faith in the Messiah. Zechariah 12.10, jot that verse down, don't turn to it. But there it's promised they will look upon the one whom they've pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Now, the first part of that, where it says they'll look upon the one whom they pierced, that was partially fulfilled at Jesus' first coming when he's on the cross. John writes about that in John 19, but he doesn't cite the rest of it. The rest of Zechariah 12.10 says that they will mourn for him. Now, what does it mean to mourn for him? It means that they will have a repentant heart, that they are going to turn from their idolatry, and they're going to turn back to God. They're going to turn to faith in the Messiah. So Zechariah 12.10 is very important. It's about national repentance, that in mass, as a nation, the people of Israel will come to faith in the Messiah. So what we can conclude then is Isaiah 27 is talking about that same time period. And by the way, the Apostle Paul talks about the same thing in Romans 11.26, where he says, in, thus, in this way, all Israel will be saved. And remember, he'd used Israel nine times earlier, nine times referring to national ethnic Israel. He's talking about national ethnic Israel. It's proven in Romans eleven twenty six. That's what he's referring to. Okay. In fact, two verses later, he says they were enemies of the gospel for your sake. Okay. So it can't be just Jewish believers and Gentile believers. No. When he says all Israel will be saved, who are the enemies of the gospel at the time? Well, they weren't believers, Jews and Gentiles, as many Reformed interpret it. In fact, it was the national ethnic nation of Israel. That's who it was. Okay, so Paul is describing that, yes, one day Israel is going to come to faith. We see this in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 11, Israel gives glory to God, implying they repent. Revelation chapter 12, what does God do? He hides them from the wrath of the Antichrist for the last three and a half years, he nourishes them in the wilderness. It's their final exodus. Okay, he's using that language. So, yes, they're brought to faith in the 70th week of Daniel. That's what's being described here in Isaiah 27. So, listen to what it says at the very end of Isaiah 27, all about Israel's promises and the reestablishment of the kingdom. Isaiah 27, 12 through 13, it says, in that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. Now stop there for just a moment. Why is it important that he is going to start this ingathering from the Euphrates to Egypt? Because those were the original boundaries given to Abraham for the nation of Israel. And what had happened is beyond those borders, you had men and women who are Israelites who have been dispersed because of unfaithfulness, because they wouldn't believe and God and his promises culminating in the Messiah. Okay, so here, this threshing, this ingathering is going to start from the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, from the Euphrates to the Nile, as it were. And notice the promise. He says, and you will be gathered up one by one. Stop there. This is going to be a supernatural ingathering. In fact, in the Greek Septuagint, the term gathered is sunago the identical term that Jesus was using in Matthew 24, 31. It's using episenago, gathering up one by one. Now, why is that important? Well, because it shows us that what's being depicted is not the rapture of the church, but the regathering of the sons and daughters of Israel. Okay, and notice in verse 13, I'm sorry, I didn't read the whole text, did I? We'll keep reading. Notice the inflow is going to be from Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Notice here the phrase great trumpet. They're going to be gathered up one by one, be brought back into the kingdom of Israel, when the Gadol Shofar, the great trumpet, is blown. The only reference to a great trumpet in the entire Old Testament is found here. What does Jesus describe in Matthew 24, 31? It's a gathering with a great trumpet. He is alluding directly to Isaiah 27, 13, which is not about the rapture of the church, but the ingathering of the sons of Israel. In fact, to prove it, 
Notice he says it's about the sons of Israel. And when the sons of Israel are regathered, they're going to be brought where? To heaven? As what happens in John 14. Remember John 14, 1 through 3. Jesus says, I will prepare a place for you in my father's house. And I'll come again to receive you to myself. So that where I am, there you will be also. Where is the father's house? It's in heaven. But where are the sons of Israel going to be gathered? Well, they're going to be gathered on earth to the mountain that's at Jerusalem. Okay, so the 70th week of Daniel is bracketed by gatherings. The first gathering on your left to right is the gathering of the church to heaven to meet Christ. The second gathering at the end of the 70th week is a gathering of the Israelite elect into the kingdom of the land of Israel. And in between, you have a bunch of cosmic upheavals, the sun, moon, and stars being darkened, because it is really the end of the world. It is the consummation of the age as the new messianic age is dawning. The creator shook his tree in the cosmic upheavals as he took again control of his glorious kingdom. So that's what I think these upheavals are about. The sun, moon, and stars being darkened. Yes, they were figurative in the Old Testament. But in the future, they will be literal as God does bring about the consummation of all of his promises and the end of the age. Promises that you and I are going to be partakers in through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, with that, I'd like to take any comments and questions. And I've got another whole PowerPoint lined up for us. I know we've only gotten 23 minutes in. I've got a whole other PowerPoint for us I can start, but I'd like to take some comments and questions on this before I start the new one, because perhaps somebody has some ideas or thoughts or comments that they would like to share. So I don't know if we're prepared to do that, but I would love to take them now. Yes, I got you, Bob. Here's one for us. Okay, so anybody with a comment or question, We'll repeat it into the, the uh, computer so that Eric can hear it. Okay. Oh, Christy. Okay. Christy asks, the great and awesome day of the Lord, how does that fit in with this timetable or consummation? Yeah, you know, it's a great question, Christy. I think the phrase, the great and awesome day of the Lord, like you see in Joel 3, you also see at the end of Malachi, I think that's a reference to what we'd refer to as the narrow day of the Lord. So in the narrow day of the Lord, you have the specific 24-hour day where the Messiah comes and fights against the enemies of God. And the reason I say that is because sometimes the writers in Hebrew in the Old Testament would use the day of the Lord for a narrow day. And I think we see that in Joel chapter 3 when he's talking about the sun, moon, and stars being darkened as the nations are brought into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Remember, the valley of Jehoshaphat is the valley in which God will judge his enemies. And ultimately, that battle is going to culminate in Jerusalem. It's, the idea is there's one day in vision. And so we see, for example, in Malachi, the great promise that before the great and awesome day of the Lord, identical phrase, you're going to have Elijah the prophet come. Now, in a sense, Elijah the prophet did come in the form of John the Baptist. But remember, Jesus did not rule out a second fulfillment. He said he is coming and he has come. Okay, I believe that was in Matthew 10, if I remember correctly. The point being is that certainly Elijah is coming again, and we see that in the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. You have a Moses-like witness. He does the same plagues that Moses did during the first exodus. You have Elijah who's able to shut up the heavens from rain like the first Elijah did. And those two witnesses prophesy for the last three and a half years. And so Elijah does come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. When we understand what's being referred to is that last 24-hour battle, okay? So 
that's the way I would understand it is sometimes just like you and I would use the term day to refer to a 24 hour day. And sometimes we refer to a broad period of time. The Old Testament writers did the same thing. Regarding this passage, this passage in Isaiah 27, and what Jesus is referring to at the end of Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31, it yes, it's the end of the 70th week of Daniel, which brought in the broad day of the Lord, but it's also culminating in that narrow day of the Lord, the 24-hour period in which Jesus bodily returns to fight against the enemy. So I hope that helps answer the question regarding the narrow day of the Lord as we refer to. Does that help? Oh, there's a question from Scott Kimball. Yeah. So is that at the end of the millennial kingdom then? Scott asked whether that happens at the end of the millennium. No, so this, this battle will be prior to the millennial kingdom. So what we're seeing here, um, for example, on the screen, right on the screen on Isaiah 27, is the gathering of the sons of Israel into the kingdom so that they will enjoy the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign. So this would be, if you're going to put it on the timeline in the book of Revelation, this would be Revelation chapter 19. So this is where Christ comes back. He destroys the Antichrist. He destroys the enemy surrounding Jerusalem. And then he brings in the sons and daughters of Israel back into their land. Because now they've repented. They've come to faith in Messiah. That'll be a supernatural work of God. And then they're going to enjoy the thousand-year reign of Christ. So this would be at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. So that's different than the white throne judgment at the, at the end of the millennial kingdom. Is that correct? Scott says that it's different than the great white throne judgment. Exactly. So the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, that's only for unbelievers. So the, uh, the white throne judgment is exclusively for those who have rejected Christ. And we know that because in Revelation 20, verse 4 and 5, there's two resurrections. The first resurrection is only for believers. And it says the second death has no power over them. Well, everyone who partakes of the white throne judgment is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And so we know the white throne judgment is only for unbelievers in Revelation chapter 20. And that will be after the thousand year reign or the millennial kingdom. Yep. And then, of course, after the millennial kingdom, you're going to have the new heavens, the new earth and the new Jerusalem that descends down. Yep, very good question. Say, Eric, I have a question that was asked me twice in the last couple of weeks, one by a yeah. believer, the same, similar one asked by a believer and somebody who's not a Christian. What relationship does current um, political, uh, national Israel, as it is right now, have to all of this yeah you know it's interesting um we as as you you and i both believe bob the signs that we see for example in matthew 24 and elsewhere are signs within this last seven years so i don't believe that there's any sign that needs to be fulfilled prior to the heresy of christ beginning with the rapture however we know that the stage is certainly being set in god's providence to set the world up for all of the events that will occur within the 70th week. And so maybe a good way of thinking of it is one of our former elders that moved away just to be closer to his grandchildren, all of you remember Jim Palmer, he used to make the comment that, and it's a good one, I like what he says, he says, you know, the 70th week of Daniel is labor pains, where you have all the signs, but the church age is really the discomforts of the pregnancy. You know, there's discomforts when your wife is pregnant, and that's certainly what we're going through now. So when you see events unfolding in the world that aren't pleasant, well, those are just the discomforts of the pregnancy. But they're not the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel will be an unusually bleak time where you're going to lose a large majority of the Earth's population. So now with current events like in Israel, all we can say is we don't know how that's going to play out. Maybe God will make the church age last another hundred years. Maybe it'll only be another five years. We just don't know because we don't have any signs now to tip us off as to when the 70th week of Daniel comes. That's why it comes like a thief. 
if a thief gave you signs before they came, they wouldn't be coming in a stealthy manner, you see. So um, that's one thing where I just punt. I say, I don't know how much longer this age will last. And I can't look at the politics of Israel or the politics of America to try to discern how long the church age will last. We simply don't know, according to Jesus' own words in Matthew 24, 36. That would be my answer. I totally agree now. However, um, you mentioned those boundaries from Euphrates to the river of Egypt. There are people who say that's proof now that America should be demanding that Israel has those boundaries right now. And that verse <laughs> proves that they should have them. Right. And, and I kind of, um, I, I wouldn't agree with that. I uh, Now, don't get me wrong. If Israel wanted those boundaries, I think they belong to them. But my whole point is this. This is something that we as Americans are not going to bring about. This is something that God is going to bring about. And so we don't have to worry as believers in Christ and bringing this about. In other words, we don't bring the 70th week of Daniel about. God does providentially. We don't have to worry about establishing the borders of Israel. God will do that. He will do that providentially as he sees fit. That's exactly and, um, my answer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's so, part of providence. However, yep. it, goes, it gets even worse than that because this guy that you and I both disagreed with is right. picking up his heels again. And there okay. are people out there saying God is going to curse America because we sent an invoice to Israel to try to broker a deal for some land here or a peace treaty there. And so they're uh, lining up all these events and saying, see, somebody went to Israel from going back so many decades. Every time America sends somebody to Israel to help make a deal, a hurricane hits America. Oh, right, right. Okay. Yep. You know yeah. the kind of people I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. Again, there's one on the table. So now, again, God's angry with America. And so it's very frustrating for us to try to say the boundaries of Israel aren't determined by American politics. And hurricanes don't teach doctrine. Amen. Well said. And these people who claim to be prophets from God who come up with their doctrine based upon when a hurricane shows up are false prophets. But boy, they got, they, they got huge ministries, millions of yeah. dollars, all kinds of followers, and they're nutcases. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. No, you're right. And that's one of, the, I think, the important reasons why when we see that the signs are all within the 70th week of Daniel, it's probably not nearly as exciting because you can't, look at your newspaper and say, oh, I bet this event is what was foretold here. Because the the signs within the 70th week say to us that we have no idea when these events are going to bring be brought about. And so I think of the words that Jesus gave when he said, um, a wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And Bob, you did a lot of great work on that phrase, this generation. When Jesus adds to it, even wicked and adulterous generation, he's using it certainly as a pejorative. As you pointed out in your excellent CIC article, it's not a period of time, but this generation is those who are characterized by unbelief, whether it was the beginning in in Cain and Abel's day or if you're in unbelief the day that the Lord returns in glory, you're part of this wicked generation. And so what Jesus is claiming is that there's going to be no sign given to this generation except that which is already given in the resurrection. That's the final proof. And so that's why when this generation ends in the 70th week of Daniel, then the signs come. The 70th week of Daniel is stopping this generation, as it were. And so that's why... We really can't know whether any given event today is something that's uh, pretending some cataclysmic event in the Middle East. We, we just don't know that. And what's more, by the way, when it comes to these cataclysmic events today, like hurricanes, etc., those things we can't know to be the wrath of God because we have no authoritative apostle or prophet on the scene. 
And so uh, I know Jonathan Kahn and other false teachers will claim that this is the wrath of God. They don't know that. Um, they're making probably the same error that those in Jesus' day, when they claim that the man born blind had to be born blind, either because of the parent's sin or the man's own sin, and Jesus had to explain that they were both wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, yeah, we can't people, know. The people in Galilee. And, and likewise, I, I think it really hurts evangelicals when they sink to the level of the liberals. Because we yes. have the liberals telling us that the hurricanes are hitting because God's angry that we're burning fossil fuels. Right. Great point. Yeah. So now, <laughs> we, we got guilt on the left, guilt on the right, guilt, guilt, guilt. You wicked yeah. sinners see God's angry. There's a hurricane. Right. Um, when Jesus tells us we can't have understanding of moral law by observing nature. That's right. Moral law That's comes from special revelation, not from nature. Amen. Exactly right. Okay, so good. I'm yeah. glad you and well, I agree, Eric. Yeah, well, no, well said, Bob. That's well put. Well, it's still out there, and I'm telling you, we got a mess here in America, that's for sure. Yeah, we, we really do, don't we? It is. It's really a sad day. Well, so, well, any other comments or questions? I um, had one of my computers shut down here, so don't mind me. I'm just going to be reestablishing it here. Okay, while you're doing that, just, uh, dear saints, don't, uh, we need to be comforted. God's providence is a comforting doctrine for all Christians. Because it says Amen. all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And uh, providence is comforting because God is in charge of all things. And he can use them to benefit his own purposes and his own people. And while this is all, we're a little whacked out here, Eric. Yeah, we have a psychedelic Eric here. Oh, <laughs> I think I'm we sorry. I'll back. be right back. I'm just going to grab a different PowerPoint here. We went back to the 70s. See, <laughs> while you're doing that, uh, I'm assuming I'm teaching Sunday school next week. Is that correct? That is correct, Bob. Okay. Um, I'll, then I'll I'm deal sorry, with that next week. I, I have a couple slides I didn't get to in the sermon the last time I preached having to do with God's moral law and, God, and Christian liberty and God's pro, providence. Oh, yeah. And, and then how we learn things. And the verse in Acts that we'll be covering will be God, that Paul's Macedonian vision. And then that brings right. up the question whether... If we were really pious, would we all be getting visions like that and making our decisions accordingly? Right, I want right. to cover that question next week. I'm just doing a little plug here while you're getting... Right. No, that's very good. I'm sorry. I've got a, a little problem with my PowerPoint here. Do you need I'll me try to get anything it. down on this end? I think I'm good. I think I'll get it here. Okay. So what I've got to do is get back to my full screen. And I'm going to share it with you guys. And there we go. Hopefully it'll. Oh, that looks very good. I'm going to uh, silence. Oops, I got the wrong date on there, but okay. I think everybody understands. I'll, I'll get back to my seat and I'll turn it over to you. No, I'm sorry. So I we were kind of caught between PowerPoints and uh, I apologize for having to make the switch like that. But I wanted to keep the messages distinct. But thank you for the questions and answers, and we'll do more here. I won't go very long. I know we've only got about 20 minutes left, but one of the questions that we looked at last time, remember in Isaiah, or excuse me, in Joel 2.11, he said that the day of the Lord is great and awesome, and he asked the question, who can endure it? And what we're going to find out now in Joel 2.12 through 17 is the only people who can endure the coming day of the Lord, whether it was in Joel's day or the future day of the Lord, is those who repent and believe. And what's beautiful about this is you see that this, the plan of salvation has always been the same. Salvation was never by works in the Old Testament to be followed by, well, it's only by faith in the New Testament. No. What we learn here afresh in Joel 2 is that unless you repent and believe, you cannot be spared the wrath of God, whether it was in Joel's day, Isaiah's day, or whether it's in our day. 
salvation has always been the same. It's always been by faith alone in Christ alone. So whether it was Abraham looking forward to the day of the cross or you and I looking back to the day of the cross, it's one faith that saves. There's one Savior who saves, and there's one plan of salvation. And so that's what we're going to learn here once again. So remember here is this call to repentance that we see in Joel. Now, why is he doing this? Because if Israel will repent because of the locust plague, and the reason they had the locust plague was because of their own idolatry, God will not send upon them the greater judgments by these human enemies that he's alluding to in Joel chapter 2. So that's why you see this call to repentance, Joel 2, 12 through 13. He says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Now notice here, I love this. It's so beautiful this call to repentance. Notice, first of all, in red, he says, return to me with all your heart. The term return there in Hebrew is shuv. And I'll be showing you a slide later on that really shows this is a term often used in the Old Testament to return or to turn back to God. Um, it would be very much in keeping with epistrepho uh, in the New Testament, this idea of turning back. Okay, so the Lord wants his people to return to him, meaning return to covenant faithfulness, return to believing in me, and therefore obeying me. Remember, in the Old Testament, faith and obedience go hand in hand, just as they do in the New Testament. So if you really believe, you act on that. That's the implication in the scripture. So returning has to do returning to faith in Yahweh and turning from idolatry. Now, notice he's also calling him to return with their whole heart. And so a superficial repentance is, of course, ruled out. So what does it mean to return with your whole heart? Well, it means that you have fruit, that you bear fruit in keeping with repentance, as we see in the New Testament. Now, what it means to repent with the whole heart means we have to come to God on his terms in both our doctrine and in our deeds. And a great place to illustrate this is in Revelation chapter 2. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at what Christ said to the church at Ephesus. And I want you to see the relationship between the doctrine and the deeds and how they go hand in hand. Please turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verse 6 and verse 15. Verse 6 and verse 15. We'll look at those two verses. Now, in Revelation 2 here, remember Jesus is addressing the church at Ephesus, and he had some things against them, but the one thing they had going for them was that they hated the doctrine and the deeds of the Nicolaitans. At least most of them did. But you're going to see that it's both the doctrine and the deeds of the Nicolaitans that had to be repented of or shunned. Um, if you didn't hold to them, you just shun them. You don't allow them in. So notice Jesus says, Revelation 2, 6, he says, Yet this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So stop there. I hope you all see that. Jesus hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and many of the people in Ephesus did, and he congratulates them for that. He commends them for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But skip to verse 15 now. Now he's going to give a rebuke because some in Ephesus held to their doctrine. Notice verse 15, he says, So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, why am I laboring the distinction between the teaching, the doctrine, and the deeds? The reason why is I want you to see that both are absolutely essential and go hand in hand. If you're truly repenting, you're repenting in both doctrine and deeds. Our deeds always follow our doctrine. Why? Well, because you act on what you truly believe. Uh, when I was a pilot and I was training, if I didn't believe something would work in the cockpit, I wouldn't do it. But if I believed in a certain procedure, I believed it was efficacious for the flight, I would do it. And in the same way, 
you live your whole life by living out what you really believe. You believe that stopping at red lights is beneficial for your health. And therefore you stop at red lights. If you believe that stopping at red lights was bad for you, you wouldn't stop at red lights. We always act on what we really believe. And so repentance with a whole heart is a repentance in both doctrine and deed. Now also remember that the heart is the center of the thought life for the Hebrew. So I don't want you to think as you read this, return to me with your whole heart, that somehow he's calling them to have just an emotional response. Yes, it's emotions, but the heart was the seat or the center of the thought life. So it was your cognitive ability is yes, your emotions too, but it was both. It was both your, your, it was really three things. It was your will, your cognitive rational ability and your emotions. So all three are at play here with the heart. Now I want to illustrate this further. Turn your uh, Bibles, if you will, turn it to Mark seven verses 14 through 16. Because I, what I want you to see in Mark 7, 14 through 16 is that Jesus declares that it's the heart or your thought life as that's where sin comes from. Sin is not an external issue of our environment. It is an internal problem related to our thought life, how we think. And so uh, turn your Bibles to Mark 7, verses 14 through 16, because I want to understand this idea of heart as our thought life to show where the sin problem comes from. It comes from inside, not from the outside. Now, as you turn to Mark 7, 14 through 16, remember there the Jesus disciples were being rebuked by the Pharisees because they didn't wash their hands prior to eating a meal. Well, Jesus has to point out that it's not the outside of the cup or even what they drink or eat that defiles them. But what defiles them is their own sinful heart, their thought life. Notice what said Mark 7, verse 14 and 16. It says, after he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man or what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So notice Jesus is very careful to show that it's not what the disciples ate. Therefore, it didn't really matter whether they were washing their hands so much, at least for the problem of sin. What mattered is what was coming out of the heart, what was coming from the inside. That's why genuine repentance is a change of our thought life. Okay? It's a returning to the Lord where we think, and we believe that his promises are true, that we believe and we trust upon him and his promises, and we turn, therefore, from idolatry. So again, that's why he's saying, return to me with your whole heart. He says, rend your heart and not your garments. The whole idea here is that true repentance can't be merely superficial. It has to be a change of someone's thought life, that they really have to believe and therefore obey, all right? Now, the basis of being able to return to the Lord is now grounded in the character of God. Notice how God is described, he's gracious, meaning he's a God who bestows blessings upon those who don't deserve it. Notice he's compassionate. He's the one who loves those who are unlovable, which is really all of us as sinners. He's slow to anger. He's not one who's capricious or flies off the handle in anger. He's one who's slow to anger. Now, to summarize all that he is, he says that he's abounding in loving kindness. There's our term, passat. That's the term that I believe best summarizes both grace and mercy in the Old Testament. Mercy is where we don't get what we do deserve. And again, grace is where we get unmerited favor. We get what we don't deserve. Okay? So that's loving kindness. Now, remember... The great picture of loving kindness or chesed is found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I love that story because there, remember Mephibosheth, who was a shameful one who came from Lodavar, which is literally no place. He was a nobody from nowhere. 
he should have been put to death by King David because he would have been a contender of the throne as Saul's grandson. Remember, he was crippled physically, so there was no way that he could defend himself. There was nothing he could do. He was completely at the mercy of the king. If King David wanted him dead, he'd be dead, and he should have been put to death. He was a rival to the throne, but instead, what did King David give him? He extended him loving kindness or chesed, so much so that he brought Mephibosheth, the spiritual, or excuse me, the physical uh, cripple, who I think is symbolic of our spiritual crippledness. He brings him into the throne room and tells him he's forevermore going to eat at the king's table. And what was the response of Mephibosheth? He didn't say, well, I deserve this. After all, I'm Saul's grandson. No, he said, what am I but a dead dog that I should eat at the king's throne or the king's table forevermore? That was his response. That's our response to God. Who are we but dead dogs to eat at his table forevermore? But it's the same kind of loving kindness, the grace and mercy of God, that ensures if we return to him, Notice on the screen, he is going to be one who receives us again. That's what Joel is telling the people of Israel. Now, in the next slide, we don't have time to get into this. We only have eight minutes. But what you're going to see is that Joel plays a little coy with them. He says, hey, if you repent, perhaps God will return to you and he will heal you. And the reason they should expect that is what? Because God's character. When we repent and come to him in faith, it's God's character that he will receive us back. So it would be out of character for him not to. And so do you see then that the hope of returning or repenting isn't in our ability? It's based on the character of God. God is good, gracious, and full of cassette. So when people repent and believe, it is his character to openly receive them unto himself. That's the basis for our call to repentance. It's based on the character of God, who willingly will take lost sinners and receive them to the throne room, to his table forevermore. Now, with that, I just want to share or save five minutes here so that you can share what you will. Um, and just talk about repentance for a few minutes, and then we'll just close with prayer, and we'll continue this uh, PowerPoint next time. I guess uh, Bob will be doing the Sunday school next week, and then I'll be doing the sermons. So, but I, I would love to talk about repentance if anyone has any thoughts or comments about returning to the Lord or his mercy or grace. Okay, Eric. No, yeah. Uh, work. Hey, Eric won't hear you. You just got to tell me, and I'll repeat it. goes in there. Yeah, and Bob, you've done some good writing on what it means to draw near. That's kind of a buzzword in some circles. And you've shown that what drawing near means is that we come to faith in him. We come by faith and we draw near as we repent and believe the gospel. But the, the problem with lost sinners is that none of us have the ability to draw near to God or to come to faith in and of our own power. And we see passages that clearly lay this out, like in Romans 3, where it says that none seek after him, no, not one. And so none of us left our own devices would draw near to God. So what God has to do to enable that is what we call being born from above. So that's what we called last time the effectual calling in Romans 8.30, where God enables lost sinners who have a will that is in bondage to sin. Because as, as Jesus says in John 3.19, we love our deeds of darkness. Uh, therefore, we turn from the light to darkness. That's our natural bent. So what God has to do is he has to do a heart change for us by the power of the Holy Spirit, where he enables his elect to believe the gospel. Okay, so that's what we believe is the scriptures clearly say that unless God enables us to repent and believe, it won't come about. We can't draw near. So oftentimes you'll see a command by God to seek after us, but we can't seek him. He'll call us to draw near, but we can't do that. He'll call us to be holy. And proof of this is, remember, he says, be holy as I am holy. Is there any Christian who's willing to say, because God commanded me to be holy, I can do that in my own power? 
Well, of course, no Christian believes that. So when Jesus commands us to be holy as God is holy, everyone realizes, well, I can't do that. I need the grace of God to do that. Well, why should we expect that when he commands us to believe or to draw near or to seek him, and he's the rewarder of those who seek him, why don't we say yes? That also uh, means I need his enablement to do that as well. I think that's the way we should understand the scriptures. And Bob, you want to comment on that? Yeah, well, let me, I think part of Eric's question was, what about once you already are a Christian? Hmm. Is there some way that we can draw nearer to God than we are? Um, what, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting. Once you're in faith in Jesus Christ, you've gone from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. You can't be any more near to God than you are by being in Christ. Now, there are times when you and I do sin, and we sin even as believers, and what's interesting about believers is that sin will grieve us. It certainly grieves the Holy Spirit by whom we've been sealed until the day of redemption, according to Ephesians 4.30. But it also grieves us. And so one of the good signs of being a regenerate believer is that your sin bothers you. Um, so, yes, we are always those who are constantly repenting and turning from sin. But we can't draw any nearer to God than we already have through faith in Christ. That's a status issue. And the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, if it was valid, if it was genuine faith, which the Lord alone knows, you are as close to him as possible and will never be separated again, according to Jesus' own promise in John chapter 10. Okay, so am I correct to say then that near and far are not geographical terms, but relational well said. Yes, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, well so those said. Those who are near to God are those who have a relationship with Him, Amen. Love Him, and go to Him in prayer and show humble dependence on Him, rather than an arrogant going and trying to solve all your own problems. Yeah, well said. Okay. Amen. Uh, one more. By the way, Bob, um, one question. Could you tell people where they could find that uh, paper you wrote on dining with the king again? Uh, what, um, If you remember what issue it was. It's in your critical issues commentary yeah, I, um, okay. issue. Okay. I just, uh, Peter William has a question. I want to give some. Oh, yeah. Okay. Peter asks, we're referring to means of grace. Um, certainly, the means of grace are are there tools that God uses to sanctify his people because in the tools that he gives us, whether it's the word of God, whether it's prayer, uh, whether it's the Lord's supper, the prayer is a little bit different in that God acts on our behalf in real time, but the Lord's supper and the word of God, for example, they contain the promises that you and I can believe. So having those promises always put forward in front of the people of God enables us to remember what the Lord has done, that you and I would be convinced that these things are true and that we would live for them. So the means of grace are tools that God uses us, uses to sanctify his people, meaning to keep us in the faith. Um, and certainly it's his power that enables us to believe, but he does use tools. He uses means, and that's why we call them the means of grace. Uh, some denominations like Baptists will often call them the ordinances of the Lord. Yeah, okay. But I, I like the term means of grace because they are tools that God uses to graciously sanctify his people. What did you find yep. out, Christy? Um, Mishta, yeah. Uh, issue, 126. issue 126, Dining with the King. Yeah, yeah, that's it's a, it's a great one for people to look at if they want to understand that idea of cassette and the idea of God's mercy and yeah. grace. Well, that, that Mephibosheth is one of the really cool stories in the whole Bible. The miracle it is, is that somebody as pathetic as me could be part of what God's doing. Amen. Well, so I, that's how that's how every one of us should feel. Amen. Well said, Bob. Could well, I tell you what, I, I know we're out of time. Um, I'll bow our heads in okay, prayer. Good. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God of cassette, of loving kindness, that you did by your mercy and grace save us out of this perverse generation. And you brought us to your yourself you spared us from the wrath to come, and you've assured us of the glories that will come 
in the resurrected age. I do pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters that you would enable them to persevere, especially through this difficult time. Help them to remember the promises. I pray for Bob and his stamina and his health. We pray for continued healing upon him. We pray that you'd speak through him and open our ears to hear what your word says in the sermon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.